Well, thank you. And uh, once again, uh, happy Father's Day to the fathers here. It's quite providential that the passage we're studying today uh, involves fathers, fatherly discipline over their children. We're going to be looking at Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. It's in the New Testament. It is a letter written uh, by an unknown author. We don't know for sure who this author was, but it was written to Jewish Christians who were kind of at the end of the rope, struggling through trials and difficulties. Have you ever found yourself in the midst of a trial or difficulty in life and, and wondered, God, what on earth is going on here? Well, our passage addresses this. See, this passage is a gift from God that helps us to have a proper perspective over the many trials of our lives. The great preacher Alexander McLaren compared this passage to a a lighthouse. He said, It gives the kind of teaching that we don't notice much when the sun is shining. These verses are like a lighthouse because they speak of divine discipline. That's the biblical teaching that God disciplines and trains his children by the, uh, through the difficulties and hardships and circumstances of their lives. Our passage, once again, is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. There's so much in this rich text. We're, I feel like we're kind of just going to touch the surface of it. There may be some things that, that certainly I don't cover. If you have questions after the service, please come see me. Here we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone 
and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no bitter root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral and holy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. It is a lighthouse uh, in times of darkness. And may we, in this time of light, though, receive it and understand it for those days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is like a tough mudder. Don't know what a tough mudder is? Well, over 1.5 million people participated in tough mudders uh, just last year alone. It's, it's not your average 10K. <laughs> in fact, it's 10 to 12 miles. And it's, it's not your average obstacle course either. There are 20 obstacles. Each one are designed to instill fear and trepidation into all who participate, to cause you to want to drop out, to cause you to cower in fear and not be able to finish the course. There's giant walls that you have to climb. There's ropes that have to be swung on high above the ground. And, And believe it or not, about in the middle of the race, there's an obstacle called, yes, the Arctic Enema. <laughs> what they've done is they've, my, not my words, theirs. Uh, what they've done is they've taken giant shipping containers with the tops cut off and they fill them with ice. Over 70,000 pounds of ice at every event goes into these giant containers. And midway through at the water level, there's an obstacle that forces you to go completely under the water. If you stay too long in that obstacle, chances are you will freeze and not be able to finish the race. And oh, by the way, in order to finish the race, you have to go through one final obstacle, which is called electroshock therapy. It doesn't look so bad from a distance. It's just ankle-deep muddy water with some hay bales, but hanging above you are dozens and dozens of electrical wires, each with 10,000 volts of electricity. There's no way to make it through this without dropping to your knees in pain and agony. Life is very much like a tough mutter. <clears throat> it's long. It's arduous. There are obstacles around every corner. Some are paralyzing. The tendency is to grow weary and be faint-hearted and to sit out the race. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in our passage that God has a plan for all the obstacles that come our way. More than that, and this is what's hard to grasp, is that God actually is the one who sovereignly places the obstacles in our path. He does so in order to train us up and to discipline us for our good. Now we see in verse 5 that this isn't actually often how we see things when we're in the midst of our trials and difficulties. In verse 5, there's, we can see there's a couple ways to respond. We can regard to God's discipline lightly, 
or we can come weary and falter. In other words, um, the first way would be to say, you know, God really doesn't have anything in store for me with this trial. I'm just going to get through it and then life will be better. Or on the other hand, people become weary and falter. Where are you, God? Do you not care? Uh, The Bible says that you are my heavenly father. Don't fathers rescue their children from difficulties? Let me ask you, when you look back on the hardships, the trials of your life, which is your tendency? Do you tend to disregard or do you tend to become weary and falter? Thankfully, our passage offers us a third way. It's the way of hope-filled endurance. What we see in our passage is that God disciplines us for our good. Therefore, we must endure with hope. We're going to see that as we look at three different areas this morning. First, we're going to look at the gift, then the grace, and then the goal. First, the gift of discipline. You and I need God's gift of discipline. We need his discipline in our lives, and thankfully, he gives us what we need. Now, the word discipline in both its noun and verb forms that we see in our passage comes up nine times. It's the word pedia. It means to, to train up a child, to teach and to educate. And, but it also has with it, it can convey a meaning of chastisement. We see that word in the passage here. It's not really a word that we use very much these days. Uh, but it, to chastise means to reprimand or correct or punish. And, and that's kind of the sense that we see it here in this passage. Now, I think most here would agree that parental discipline is absolutely necessary if our children are to mature into emotionally healthy and productive members of society. Just stop to imagine what your life would be like if no one had disciplined you. You would be the most arrogant, selfish, self-centered, out-of-control person. Oh, wait a minute, is that you? No, it's not. I remember in high school getting really angry with my parents because um, I had friends whose parents were so lax with them. They got to go anywhere, stay out late. Even when they got in trouble, they they never really seemed to get in trouble. And, And there was a time that I wished my parents were like them, but not anymore. See, without good fatherly and motherly discipline, children do not develop properly. And more than that, what is actually developed in their lives are attitudes and expectations and behaviors that are downright offensive. And the older they get, the less influence the parent has. Therefore, discipline is important. It's necessary. Now, if there is this great and necessary need for us to be disciplined by our earthly parents, how much more so are we in need of discipline by our spiritual father in heaven? Some people become Christians at a very young age, while others become Christians later in life. Now, irrespective of how old you were when you came to faith in Christ, you started your Christian life as a Christian, as an infant. What we know about God um, in Christ at that point was very limited. What we know about God or what we knew about God, about our own sinful hearts was limited. What we knew about God's faithfulness and his steadfast love towards us was limited. What we knew about Christ's call upon us to live for, for him and for his kingdom, it was very limited, wasn't it? 
what we knew then about living holy lives that honor God and bring glory to him. It was very limited, wasn't it? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we must admit that even now, we're not the people that we know we should be. And it's not so much that we don't know what holiness is or that it's good to love others sacrificially. It's not so much that we don't know that our lives are best lived in service to Christ and his kingdom. It's not that we don't know all this. We do. Uh, The problem is we don't often do it. We're like kids who know it's time to go off to school and yet we don't want to get out of bed. Thankfully, we have a heavenly father who gets us out of bed, so to speak. Though we might not be content with where we are spiritually, thankfully, God is committed to growing us. We need God's fatherly discipline. There's a story of a man who found this beautiful butterfly cocoon and he brought it home into his house and and he watched it and monitored it for a number of days. And then one day it appeared as if the butterfly was now struggling to try to extricate itself from its cocoon. And, And the man thought that he would give it a little bit of help and he took a knife and he cut a little slit in it to make it easier for the butterfly to get out. But what he meant for good actually harmed the butterfly. Its wings were malformed and it was unable to fly. See, what the man didn't realize was that butterflies need to struggle to extricate themselves from the cocoon in order for their wings to fully develop. Similarly, we need God's discipline in our lives or else we will not fully develop. And we need God to do the work because we often don't see any need for growth. We feel like we've gotten pretty far along. We're good enough. God is not content with just good enough. And so he places obstacles in the paths of his children to mature them. Do you remember the words of Paul to that immature church in Corinth? It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Or here's what he says. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Sometimes we don't want to give up our childish ways. Thankfully, we have a Father in heaven who disciplines us. And so verses 1 through 3 are meant to challenge the reader to see life from a different perspective. The the writer reminds his readers that all throughout all generations, God's people have endured hardship. That's what chapter 11 was about. that hall of faith of Hebrews. You can go and read it. All of these people who lived for a greater day, who endured great hardship. And then he points us, he points us to Christ. And, and, and he tells us to, to have our eyes on him, on him who is the prize. That we're to strip ourselves of all earthly weights and sin that so closely entangles us and trips us up. And, and, and calls, calls us to run with endurance this race before us. Now, the original audience would have been thinking, Yeah, but you just don't know how hard it's been. It's been one trial after another. And if you knew that, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. And no doubt some of you here could probably rattle off a list of difficulty upon difficulty that gives you reason to pause, that gives you a reason to say, you know what, I'm going to check out of the race 
for a little while. But the writer says something that challenges us, kind of not really expected, and it's kind of harsh to a sense. Do you see what he says in verse 4? He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Thanks for the encouragement. One commentator rephrased the words this way. He said, it's like the writer is saying, cut the melodrama. I don't see any bodies lying around here. What is he doing? He's reminding them of the far greater race that Jesus ran. Jesus paid the ultimate price of obedience. Jesus decided to stay in the race, and his blood was shed. Thankfully, he did not drop out. Thankfully, he did endure. For him, there was no way around the cross. There was no plan B. He endured, and he endured, and he endured. And the victory that he won, we now share as God's people. Christian, we need the proper perspective on life. It's an endurance race with God-ordained obstacles meant to mature us in our faith. We need the discipline of our Heavenly Father. And when it comes our way, He has given us one to turn our focus to, and it's not ourselves, but rather it is His Son who's endured the cross for us. That's the gift. Now for the grace of discipline. Often when we're in the midst of trials, we doubt God's love for us, right? But the writer here says something interesting. He says, actually, the opposite is true. He argues that that the fact that you are enduring discipline is actually evidence of God's love for you. There's a farmer who had a weather vane high on his barn, and it said, God is love. Another farmer one day came by and says, you know, why do you have that weather vane with the words, God is love? He said, I need the reminder that no matter which way the wind blows, God is love. But that's not how we often see it. Kent Hughes points out two pitfalls we may encounter. The two pitfalls are disdain and dismay. Disdain and dismay. Uh, We see them in verse 5, which is verse 5 and 6 are actually quotations of Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. The first pitfall is that we can disdain God's discipline. So we read in verse 5, it says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Check this out. Kent Hughes writes this. Uh, He says, Many people who undergo the unpleasantness of discipline, choose to remain indifferent to its significance. They vaguely intuit that they are experiencing discipline, but refuse to meditate upon what it might mean. They make light of it, they blow it off. And he goes on to say that by refusing to consider their deep waters, they remain perpetually shallow. The sad thing is that people who consider themselves mature Christians do this. They don't think they're in need of God's discipline after all. They're mature, so they think. And so when hardships come, they'll carelessly throw out some Bible verse like, you know, God works out all things to those who love him. He works it out for their good. As if God's desire for you is to work out something good for you instead of working good 
in you. Perhaps the good work that God has in mind is a better you. (laughs) Christian, God cares more about your character than your comfort. So if you ever find yourself in discomfort, the first thought ought to be, is God trying to change something in my character? We're not to disdain God's discipline. The other pitfall may be dismay. Later in verse 5, you read, nor be weary when reproved by him. You know, far from being indifferent, there's some people when discipline comes, they get, they, they are so weary by it. They're paralyzed, just like the runners in verse 3 that, that seem unable to finish the race. They collapse on the track. Christians often throw up their hands and say, why God, why me, what's going on? They doubt God's care, they doubt God's good intentions. Remember this though, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he wrote, God will not test, I'm summarizing, God will not test his children beyond their strength. He will not give you anything that really you cannot endure. And we also must recognize that God will not allow anything to touch us that has not already gone through his loving hands. Does that make sense? What we must believe is that God is more loving and more demanding than any earthly parent. We must embrace that and rejoice in that. This is good for us. So the remedy to these pitfalls is, once again, a perspective that discipline is actually a gracious work of God. It's a a work of his love towards us. That's the point the writer is making. In in verse 6, after he says, you know, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary, um, he begins by saying, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as son? And then he says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We need to meditate on that. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises everyone he receives. Everyone. Contrary to the way you may feel, verse 7 says that God is treating you as sons. Verse 8, he says, what son is there <clears throat> Excuse me, whose earthly father did not discipline them? Right? Christian, you think that God is indifferent to you and the trials and difficulties you're going through? You're wrong. If God were indifferent to you, he would not discipline you. It's fathers who are indifferent that don't discipline. Fathers who do love their sons do discipline their sons. Christian, it's precisely because you are a son that you experience God's discipline. Now, some of you women may be thinking, Mark, why do you keep calling me a son? (laughs) kind of weird. Um, Just as every man in Christ is a bride of Christ, so too every woman in Christ is a son of God. Uh, In in the Old Testament days and in Jesus' time, it was the firstborn son who had the rights of inheritance, who owned all of the land when the father passed away, also had all the responsibility for caring for the family that the father had left left behind. It's the son who is the heir of the estate. So understand this. In Christ, male and female, we all have firstborn son status. It's called sonship. If you're in Christ, you've been adopted into God's beloved family and given firstborn son status. And so Christian, you are a child of God and you, have, you are privy to every blessing in the heavenly realm. 
the blessing of adoption, and also the blessing of discipline. Every child of God is subjected to divine discipline because God loves all of his children and he's committed to all of their spiritual blessings. The question the writer causes us to ponder is, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the encouraging words of exhortation that addresses you as sons? Have you forgotten how God works? Have you forgotten that God loves you and disciplines you? It's from this perspective that, that, that dismay and disdain are, are, are pushed away and we begin to delight more and more in our Heavenly Father. So that's the gift and the grace and discipline. Before we move to our last point, I, I thought it'd be good maybe to quickly go through three forms of discipline because when we're going through discipline, it's kind of good to figure out exactly what kind of discipline is this. Once again, Ken Hughes, I'm indebted to him for this as well. He's uh, three forms of discipline. Corrective, preventative, educational. Corrective, preventative, educational. First, corrective. Sometimes Christians, sometimes children of God, undergo corrective judgment that comes from the hand of God. Now, King David is a perfect example of this. His adultery with Bathsheba led to the murder of her husband Uriah. The child that was born of this adulterous relationship died. Into David's family came all kinds of of, uh, violence. His son Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Absalom, in retribution, uh, um, murdered Amnon and then went in league with Bathsheba's father to stage a rebellion against David. This was heavy, corrective discipline, but David responded well. He learned and grew in grace. Just consider his words in, in Psalm 51. Or consider these words of the psalmist from Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went, away, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Sometimes God's discipline is corrective. Other times it's preventative. You know, I regularly pray that God would use whatever means necessary to keep me from some sort of grievous sin that would undermine God's testimony through my life or undermine the great work that he's doing here at Grace Presbyterian Church. That's a tough prayer to pray. Because it's saying, God, you can do anything to prevent me from going astray. Three years ago, I got hit by a truck while riding my bicycle, laid out. It was two years of pain, (laughs) painful recovery. I'm not saying that God did that to prevent me from some of the grievous sin. But I'm not saying that he didn't. You know, I, I've learned a lot through that, in, in that, through the trial that I went through. God has matured me in a number of different ways that I can pinpoint. But I'm, but I'm also realized that perhaps there was something He prevented me from doing. And so, I cannot look at that accident as an accident. Somehow, in some way, as painful as it was, 
And as difficult as it was, God meant it for my good. He was disciplining me in some way. So whenever you're undergoing a trial, understand that it may be because God is preventing you from some greater harm. Stop complaining. Stop being embittered. Stop feeling like you're all alone. Maybe the Lord has prevented you from something far worse. Lastly, there's educational discipline. We see this in in the story of Job. Was Job doing poor spiritually? No, he was a rock star spiritually. He was a wonderful, righteous man. He was doing well. And yet God allowed and caused extreme hardship to come into his life. And his so-called good buddies had no ability in their conception of God and in human nature um, to, to conceive that God could actually have educational purposes for hardship, for discipline. All they could think was, Job, you must have done something wrong. You know, you must have done something wrong in order for this to come upon your life. So just repent and get over with it and your life will return to being good. That's pretty much the whole book of Job until you get to the last couple chapters in which God speaks to Job and he humbles Job in a great and powerful way. After which Job says these words. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now I see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job's suffering and the revelation that God gave him gave him a revelation of who God is that was far beyond any of his contemporaries. Job was taken from one level of spirituality to a far greater one. He endured God's discipline and he was thankful to have gone through it. So those are the three forms of discipline. Corrective, preventative, and educational. They lead us to our final point, which is the goal of discipline. It's important we get this. The goal of discipline, as we see here in our passage, is twofold. The goal of God's discipline for us is that we would become more like him to be taken to him. Sounds confusing. Let me try to explain that. First, the goal of God's discipline is that we become like him. Look at the second half of verse 10. But he, that's God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. My friends, we could meditate on this for months and months and still uh, still not mind the depths of what this means for us. God disciplines us for our good that we share in his holiness. Now, let me ask you, does that excite you? I'm afraid we live in a society, and I'm afraid that many Christians, they don't get all that excited about this. Sharing in God's holiness? I think there's better things in life. What if you were to walk down the streets of Sag Harbor or East Hampton or Southampton or wherever you live, and you were to ask people, come up to people and say, hey, would you like to share in the holiness of God? Don't you think they would look at you like, what the heck? Get away, freak, right? Wouldn't they, right? Share in the holiness of God. But understand this, what the world longs for, better yet, what you long for, is holiness and righteousness on this earth and in your life. What if every obnoxious waiter 
had the full holiness of God instead? What if every abusive husband was instead holy like God? What if every gossip or bully was holy like God? What if every driver, including yourself, was holy like God? See, what we all really long for is the holiness and the righteousness of God. That's what we truly long for. We settle for far other things. Thankfully, God longs for holiness in this world and in the life of his people. God, in love, adopted an unholy people. People like you and me. He adopted us into his family, but first he had to make us holy. He makes us holy through Christ. That's what the first ten chapters of Hebrews is all about. You think Moses is great? Great. Uh, he's not as great as Jesus. Uh, you think the angels are great? They're great. Not as good as Jesus, right? You think the priests are great? They're great, but they're not as good as Jesus. You think the temple was great? Not, well, not as great as Jesus. Because Jesus fulfilled all that the Old Testament temple uh, pointed towards, which was a once and for all sacrifice for sin that takes sinners and makes them holy and sets them apart for God. That's what Christ has done for you. And this work cannot be undone, right? If you are in Christ, you will always be in Christ. Jesus said, no one can snatch um, anyone out of my hands, anyone who belongs to him. Now, this holiness of Jesus has been credited to you. It's like a bank account. The fullness of his righteousness is now yours in Christ Jesus. This, when God sees you, that's what he sees. There's no deficit there. There's no little bit to make up. This is fullness of, God, of Jesus' holiness credited to your account. Now, the work of your heavenly Father to discipline you is that the holiness that is already credited to your account begins to manifest itself more and more in your life today. The person that you are becoming, he is causing you to be. The goal of God's discipline is that we would become like him. With the even greater goal that we would come to him. You know, fathers, you know what it's like. You're on a business trip. You're traveling a long ways away, or maybe you're going fly fishing. I don't know. You're gone for a while, and you come home, and you can't wait to see what? Can't wait to see your children. All right, the wife, too. But you can't wait to see the children. The children have hugs. The wife might have, like, a long list of to-dos, right? But even that's good. All right. Can we not see that if God is our Heavenly Father, His end game is that we would be with Him? Can you not see that, Christian? That is the end game. It's, the end game is not just a little bit better you here on earth without any trials or difficulties. The end game is you in his presence for all eternity in the fullness of holiness and glory that is yours not because of anything you've done, because God has gifted it to you through his son, Jesus Christ. God is making you holy to prepare you for the day in which you will experience perfect holiness in his presence. 
Though it's a bit confusing, we see this in verse 14. That's there where we read, we read, without holiness, no one will see God, right? Um, now, if this is true, the converse is true. With holiness, one will see God. It's not your holiness. This thing isn't about you being holy and earn your way to God, right? This is, Christ has given you this holiness. Without it, you will not see God. But if you have it, you will see God. That's his promise to you. Christian, remember, one day you will see God. You will stand in his glory and all the weight of this world and all the sin that so easily clings to you will be forever stripped away. And you will experience a glory that it's hard to even fathom right now. That is God's promise to you in Jesus Christ. Now, this passage calls us to live today in light of that day to come. Does that make sense? This is who you are. This is where you're going. Why live any other way? It doesn't make sense. Imagine if I were to say to you, hey, um, in a year, uh, you're going to be on a trip to Mars, right? What would you, what would you do? Other than say, no, I don't want to go. No, what would you do? Would you not focus on that day? Would you not lay aside everything that hinders you from becoming really ready for that day? Would you not embrace the discipline of your superiors? Would you not ask questions like, what kind of physical shape must I be in to succeed? What kind of mental abilities will I need in order to prosper on the journey and on being there? What kind of expertise must I focus on? Think of all the invitations that you're going to decline, right? Instead of binge-watching watching Walking Dead, you're going to be binge-watching watching training videos. All right, that came out all weird. Um, <laughs> would you not make straight your path and walk in it? turning neither left nor right, knowing what lights ahead is where you're going and what you need to do to get there? Would you not live today with that day in mind? Of course you would. You're going to Mars, right? You better be ready. How much more so where our Lord has taken us? With the holiness that Christ has given you, you will one day see the Lord. You will one day be with the Father. Now, do you see why then the writer calls us in verse 2 to look to Jesus as we won our race? As you we, as we run, our, run, our, run our race? It's a tongue twister. Do you see why? Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven in all glory. The writer says this, Jesus endured all the hardship and the trials, the struggles, the, 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 the mocking, um, the rejection of people here on earth. He, he endured all of their sin. How? He knew the cross was coming. That, that was the race that God laid out before Jesus. There was no other race. There's no plan B that was laid out before him. But what was it beyond that that he looked towards? The, the, passage, the passage says that, that it was the, the glory that awaited him. That caused him to endure. The, the, what, what, what Jesus looked towards was the day in which he would once again be at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And that's where he is currently, today. The joy set before him. He endured the grueling battle to get there. The Bible says that at God's right hand are pleasures evermore. Do you believe that? I mean, if that's true, that's where I want to be. I don't know about you. This earth is good. Uh, being in heaven with the Father, that's the best. There is no greater. 
And so God made us holy so that we can share in his holiness. He made us holy so that we would one day be able to sit with the Father. See, the goal of God's discipline is that we would become like him in holiness, that we would be with him in his holiness. God shares his holiness with his people. All right, so this morning we've seen this wonderful promise of God. I left off Esau, I'm sorry. Um, Let me go through Esau real quick. Esau, what did he do? He had sonship. He was a son. I'm sorry, I'm, it's not in my notes. But he had, he, had, uh, he had the full rights of the first son uh, of Isaac. He and, he and Jacob were, were, were sons. But he was the oldest. He had the birthright. He sold his birthright, his sonship. Uh, the, the promise from Abraham to Isaac has now come on Jacob. Instead of Esau, he sold it for a bowl of stew. <laughs> a bowl of stew. The writer wants his people that are reading this to not fall away, to see what's at stake here. You know, Christian, don't pick up that spoon, right? There, there, there's, nothing, there's nothing more greater than your sonship, than, than what's, what's coming your way. Do, do not make, make sure that none of us here fail to obtain this grace of God. That's the point. Bull of stew. This morning we've seen these wonderful promises of God. God says he disciplines all his children. We need this gift of discipline. We, we need God's discipline. We're not the people we know we should be. And we're sluggish to do what we know we need to do. We need a heavenly father to get, up out of, to get us out of our bed and to get us to make our rooms, so to speak. And we've seen that God's discipline is gracious. It's a loving intent behind his actions towards us. He loves all of his spiritual children. Therefore, he will discipline and love all of his spiritual children. And then the goal of this discipline is for our good, that we would become holy like God, that we would share in his holiness, that we would be present with him in the age to come. Christians, life is like a tough mutter. It's like a marathon. Each of us has a race set before us. May we endure with hope. May we finish strong. May we look to Jesus and press on. A good illustration of this, we'll wrap up with this, is a guy named Art Carey who ran the Boston Marathon a number of years ago, and he's a, he's a writer in the Philadelphia Inquirer. He, he wrote an article titled, Beating Agony and the Marathon. <laughs> and he described running up Heartbreak Hill to enter in like the last four miles of the marathon. I've never ran the Boston Marathon. Uh, I might ride my bike there someday, but we'll see. Um, you know, the last four miles, and here's what he wrote. He says, the last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners... Their eyes riveted catatonically to the ground, trudge alone in their bare feet, holding in their hands the shoes that have blistered their feet. Others team up to help each other, limping along arm in arm, like maimed and battle-wearied soldiers returning from the front. But Art Carey had a different approach. He looked at a certain distinctive tall building at the finish line. And he focused on that alone. He writes, Finally, the distinctive profile of the Prudential building looms on the horizon. I began to step up my pace. Faster, faster, smoother, smoother. Suppress the pain. Finish strong. Careful, not too fast. Don't cramp. 
It's the majestic building at the finish line that he looks at. It enables him to finish strong. For us, we have a far greater thing to focus upon. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the victory has already been won on our behalf as we race out this race, that's, as we step out into this race that God has marked out for us. May we focus on him. May we finish strong. May we endure with hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words to us. They truly are like a, a lighthouse for us to see in the midst of our hardships and trials that we actually, your children are not left alone. In fact, we are dearly loved by you, and you are good towards us. You cause us to be what we are reluctant to be. You work in us what we need most, holiness, faithfulness, righteousness, goodness. We praise you for that. We ask that you give us an extra spiritual measure this week to embrace what we've heard and learned, and may we process this throughout the week. May we make it our own. May we write these truths on our hearts and so that when that day does come, when darkness hits and trials are there, may we remember uh, not to disdain or despair, but to have hope in you, we pray. Amen.